And good morning, church family. I'm so glad you're here, and whether you're joining us online or you're right here in the sanctuary, uh, it's, it's just my privilege to welcome you to this time of corporate worship. And in the event you happen to be relatively new uh, to our church, I want to let you know that next Sunday we're going to begin a three-week experience we call Discover River Oaks. Uh, it's going to happen from 11 to noon in the community room right over there. Uh, it'll be an opportunity for you to get to know some other people, uh, to meet our pastors, to ask any questions you might have about our church. It'll also uh, just be a chance for you to learn a little bit about our vision and values and how you can get more connected at our church. And in the event that you have the interest in becoming a member, at the conclusion of uh, week three, Sunday, October 24th, we'll celebrate with a luncheon afterwards in that room, and you'll have the opportunity to take the vows of membership at that time. And the event that you would like to sign up for Discover River Oaks, you can do that right now through the Church Center app or on our website. You'll find a link for that there. I also want to mention that at the conclusion of the message, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so if you're joining us online, you might want to just slip out right now and go into the kitchen, find some, some bread and juice. And if you're here in person and you happen to miss one of the individual communion kits when you walked in, uh, you'll find those at the tables in the back. Feel free to just to hop up now and grab one for yourself. Well, a few weeks ago, um, my daughter, who is in seventh grade, only seventh grade, uh, came to me and asked if I could help her with some math homework. And um, I, I said, sure. And uh, I started looking at this problem, and about 10 minutes went by, and I realized I couldn't help her. Th th yeah, th this was like, it was really like 15 problems in one. You know the one I'm talking about? Can you remember that far back? It had like parentheses and brackets and negative numbers. And um, you know, I was pretty sure when you, you, when you take two negative numbers and you multiply them, you get a, a positive. But I was a little fuzzy on what happens when you try and subtract negative numbers. And uh, do you do the parentheses first or you do the brackets first? And, and what happens when you take something that's a negative number to like the third power? It, it was all a little cloudy for me and I had to tap out. <laughs> and um, maybe, maybe you two can remember a time when things were a little confusing for you. I don't know, maybe you were driving through a, um, a congested city that was a little unfamiliar and you reached an intersection and you're trying to figure out, do you veer right or do you, do you stay straight? Or uh, maybe you've had the experience of filling out an IRS form and <laughs> you're trying to remember there, all right, what, what, what comes next? Do I, do I take this value that I subtracted and in, in, in from line two, and do I go and input this into line three, or do I, do I skip to line five because the square root of the value was an integer that, you know, is divisible by a prime number? IRS forms, they can be a little confusing, can't they? Or what about maybe um, ever had the experience of trying to, to change terminals for a connecting flight in an airport that you felt was designed by five-year-olds, like, like JFK Airport or something like that? I, I think there's been times in life when all of us maybe have felt a little confused. And uh, we're going to talk about a topic today that has been confusing for many people over the years. In Romans chapter 11, God, uh, the, God through the Apostle Paul addresses his relationship with the Jewish people. And just to give you a, a flavor for why this topic 
can be confusing. On the one hand, there's a well-known pastor of a large church in Texas. He's also the, the chairman of Christians United for Israel. His messages are, are aired regularly on TBN and other media outlets. And I'll let him share with you in his own words his thoughts regarding God's relationship with ethnic Israel. He says, the Jewish people have a relationship to God through their law of God as given through Moses. I believe that every Gentile person can only come to God through the cross of Christ. I believe that every Jewish person who lives in light of the Torah, which is the word of God, has a relationship with God and will come to redemption. I'm not trying to convert the Jewish people to the Christian faith. In fact, trying to convert Jews is a waste of time. The Jewish person who has his roots in Judaism is not going to convert to Christianity. They already have a faith structure. Everyone else, whether Buddhist or Baha'i, needs to believe in Jesus, but not Jews. Jews already have a covenant with God that has never been replaced by Christianity. So essentially what this pastor is saying is that there are two different salvation tracks. There's a Christian track that's contingent upon faith in Jesus, and then there is a Jewish track. Yeah, this teaching is the outworking of what is called dual covenant theology or two covenant theology. And the theological grounding that they would try and come up for this is the argument that, that God's covenant with Abraham was an everlasting covenant. Thus, it's still in force, and God will save those who were ethnically Jew Jewish through this covenant. On the other hand, there are those in the Christian community who would argue for what's known as replacement theology. And this is the belief that the church, and by the church, I don't mean River Oaks Community Church just right here, I mean the universal church, that the universal church has superseded for all times the people of Israel. On account of their rejection of the Messiah, ethnic Israel has forfeited all the benefits of the Old Testament covenants. And believers in Jesus have replaced the nation of Israel. They're now heirs of all the promises, and, and the church fulfills all the terms of the covenant given to Israel. Earlier this week, I was on the phone with my dad, and he was in ministry for many years. He went to seminary in the late, seven, uh, late 70s, early 80s, and he doesn't believe this view, replacement theology, but he said this was what was taught to him by his professors. He can recall in his Old Testament prophecy class, uh, the professor sort of thundering from the top, God is done with Israel. The church has replaced Israel. And with such radically different views, it's easy to see why this matter has been a source of confusion for so many. So which is it? As we think about the outworking of God's plan of redemption, is ethnic Israel a, a has-been? Or do all Jewish people, on, on account of their being a descendant of Abraham, do they have a, a special track to salvation that bypasses faith in Jesus? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> let's, let's see what Scripture has to say. Turn with me to Romans 11, and I, I'm just going to show my uh, cards up front here. Uh, I, I think uh, the dual covenant theology, uh, I, I think that view is heretical. Uh, I, I don't see any basis for that in Scripture. And, 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 and replacement theology, uh, while um, it, it could fit within the bounds of orthodoxy, I don't think it squares with the plain, straightforward reading of Romans 11. 
So let's look together, and as you're turning your way there in your Bibles, I'll just give us a brief summary of where we've been since we are joining an argument mid-thought here. So the first part of Romans, what the apostle is letting us know, is that there's this righteousness from God that has been made known, that's been revealed. And in Romans 3.21, he says that this righteousness has been manifested apart from the law, and now there's this righteousness from God through faith in Jesus. It's available for all who believe. And we, we've seen how this righteousness from God in chapters, the last part of chapter 3, 4, and 5, how it, it justifies us before God. In, in, in chapter 6, we see how it sets us free uh, from sin. In chapter 7, we see how it sets us free from the law. In chapter 8, we've seen how it gives us the assurance of eternal life, how it leads to glorification. And now we come to chapter 9, where we were um, just before we headed in our break. And in chapter 9, he sort of begins a new unit of thought. And Paul acknowledges that he is in great anguish because many of his Jewish kinsmen are unsaved. They have been the recipients of the law and the covenants, and from their race the Messiah has come yet they are not experiencing this salvation. They are not embracing this righteousness that's offered by faith through Jesus, this gifted righteousness. Paul tells us that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And on the heels of chapter 9, which is one of the clearest chapters in the Bible on the sovereignty of God and our salvation, we get to chapter 10 with a very strong emphasis on human responsibility. How are people saved? Well, chapter 10 makes it clear. Salvation is available to everyone. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's, it, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's available to everyone. Human responsibility is important. And then the, the, the question is, well, may, maybe the Jewish people just haven't heard this good news. And chapter 10, verse 18 tells us that's not the case. It says, uh, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. And the chapter ends with a quote from Isaiah beginning in verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That's a reference to the Gentile people's. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So the people of Israel, they've heard the good news and they've rejected it. This then raises a very logical question, which the apostle anticipates, and we find at the start of chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people. If the majority of Israel has failed to believe, has God turned his back on his covenant people? And the answer to that question is a very emphatic, a very resounding no. What we read next, by no means, or some translations have it, God forbid, or absolutely not. It's one of the the strongest negative statements possible in the Greek language. And the reason given for this in verses 1 to 10 is that Israel's unbelief is not total. It's partial. 
And, and he picks back up on a, on a theme that was surfaced in chapter 9. The idea that there are, are two Israels, or there's an Israel within the Israel. Chapter 9, verse 6, you might recall. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So there are physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there are children of the promise, or the word used in chapter 11 is remnant. And it's never been the case where all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were saved on the basis of their ancestry. And and, and the point that's going to be made is, is that we can't say that God has forsaken his people because a remnant is being saved. Paul writes, uh, continuing in verse 1, he says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, Paul's saying, you can't get any more Jewish than me. Remember in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, if, you know, if I'm Jewish and, and, and God has saved me, we can't say that God has forsaken his people. The fact of the matter is, is that in the first century, some Jewish people were embracing Jesus as their Messiah. And that's still happening today. There are people in our church who are ethnically Israel, and they have come to embrace Jesus as their Savior. Uh, We could think of vibrant organizations that exist today, like Jews for Jesus, that are made up of people whose um, ancestors... Uh, we'd go all the way back to the, to the patriarchs of the faith, and they have come to embrace Jesus, or as they would say, Yahshua, as their Messiah. Uh, this, I don't know, like my kids don't like it when I listen to 97.7 Truth FM in the car, but sometimes I like listening to 97.7, and if anyone else does, uh, maybe you have heard Lon Solomon's program. So what? Lon Solomon was raised in a Jewish home and came to faith uh, when he was a college student in Chapel Hill. in in the 70s, and he's been a pastor for many, many, many years uh, just outside Washington, D.C. So there are Jewish people that are being saved. And then Paul broadens this point with an appeal to the Old Testament Scriptures. Beginning in verse 2, he says this, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against heaven? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace." If we think back in history, was the entire nation of Israel saved during Elijah's day? No. Yet even during this time of widespread spiritual rebellion, God saved a remnant, which shows that he did not cast off the whole people. And the point Paul is making is that as in the days of Elijah, so it is now. The nation as a whole might not be obedient to God, but there is a minority who is obeying and who is believing. And this remnant is proof that God has not rejected his people. All right. 
But if you're saying that, that Israel as a whole remains hardened, this then raises another question, and this is surfaced in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? You remember that, um, that old commercial? I think it was probably like early 90s where there's um, an elderly woman, and she's lying on the ground, and she says, I've fallen, and help me out, and I can't get up. Yeah, that, that, that's the idea in play here. Has Israel then stumbled? Have they fallen to the point where they can't get back up? Is, is their hardness of heart final? And what's the answer? Once again, a very emphatic no. By no means. That's not the case. So in verses 1 to 10, we saw that Israel's hardening was partial. Now we see that it's, it's purposeful. So, so let's look together at verse 11. Rather, it says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So how are God's divine purposes accomplished in Israel's rejection? Well, first we see that, that Israel's trespass, their stumbling, has brought salvation to the Gentiles. So Jesus made this point on multiple occasions in his teaching. We could think about Jesus in the conversation he has with the, the centurion whose, whose servant needs healed. Or we could think about Jesus in the parable of the, the vineyard owner. Or um, the one I'm thinking of right now is, is Jesus in the parable of the wedding feast. So you, you remember how, how this one goes. There, there's, a, there's a king, and he sends his servants out with the, you know, kind of the save the date for the big wedding feast. And when the time for the party actually arrives and the servants go back out to tell everyone that initially has been invited to come on, the party's ready, they spurn that invitation. They reject it. They come up with excuses. And what does the king do? Well, the king says, go out into the highways, into the hedges, and invite everyone that my house may be full. And, and, and we see this pattern played out in the book of Acts. So, so Paul arrives in a city and when he does that, we see that he kind of makes a beeline for the synagogue, and he goes there, and he begins to teach in the, in the synagogue, and some Jews believe, but the majority become hostile, and he gets run out of the synagogue, and so he turns to the Gentiles, and he begins teaching there, and he experiences many more converts among the Gentiles. You can't help but wonder, if, if, if the entire synagogue had been converted in every town, if if the Gentiles wouldn't have been slower to hear the good news, or maybe if they would have just viewed the good news as some sort of uh, renewal movement that was happening within Judaism. But instead, because of their rejection, it seems to accelerate things for the Gentiles to hear the good news, and the door is swung wide for the church to become multi-ethnic. There's a second purpose. As the Gentiles are converted, it's God's intention that it would provoke jealousy among the people of Israel. This is the point made at the end of verse 11 and again in verse 14. 
when, when Jewish people see Gentile believers embracing the Old Testament scriptures and they observe the fellowship that we have in the church and what it looks like when we have a life that's been filled by the Holy Spirit and they witness our prayer life and they see our walk with the Lord, it ought to arouse in them a desire and they would say that, I want that too. And if you want to see an example of this, I think we could go to Acts chapter 6. You can look this up later and look at verses 1 to 7. So, so the Jewish rejection opens the door for the Gentiles. That's a stage one of God's plan of redemption here we see. And we got a stage two, the salvation of the Gentiles then stirs up envy in the Jewish people, causing them to want to believe. And then Paul alludes to a final stage in God's plan of redemption. In verse 12, he anticipates what he says is the full inclusion of the Jewish people at some point in the future. And then in verse 15, he looks ahead when the Jewish people as a whole will accept Jesus as their Messiah. And he says that will mean even greater riches for the world. So we see that the Jewish rejection is partial, that it's purposeful, and we could say there at the end that it's, it's passing or it's temporary. And this idea will be made even more clear when we get to verses 25 and 26. Then in verse 16, we read this. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The idea here is that the saving promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob cannot be discounted these promises to the patriarchs will eventually have some effect on their descendants. And then we see the apostle elaborates on the metaphor of a root and branches. Beginning in verse 17, we read this. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note in the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. In this illustration, God's redeemed people are likened to an olive tree. So in the Middle East, there's, there's two kinds of olive trees. You've got the, the wild olive tree and you have a cultivated olive tree. And it's the cultivated olive tree that yields the bigger and the better fruit. And then he uses this horticultural practice of, of grafting to help his Gentile readers realize why they can't be arrogant toward the Jewish people. So grafting is the process where you, you cut a limb from one branch and then you connect it to another in the same way that you could splice two wires together. You, you can take a limb from a wild olive tree and you can cut it and then you can reconnect it to the, the cultivated tree in order that that wild branch might benefit from the nourishing roots of, of the more established tree. And he says that the people of God are, are like a cultivated olive tree. And the root of the tree 
is the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the natural branches, that's those who are ethnically Jewish, those who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Gentile believers are like wild olive branches that have been grafted into this cultivated olive tree. Now, evidently, some of the Gentile believers were impressed by their new standing. They had a relationship with God now, and they were tempted to see themselves as superior. And Paul's point to these believers is, do not be arrogant, verse 18, toward the natural branches. Verse 20, do not become proud. There is no grounds for Christian believers to see themselves as superior to Jewish people. There's no room for pride. And I would just observe that it, it's, it's a blight on the Christian church as a whole that over the years that we've gotten this wrong, that the church hasn't heeded this, this warning. And that over the years, the, the church really has treated the Jewish people with contempt and prejudice and, and even persecution. And organizations like Christians United for Israel should be commended for their strong stance against anti-Semitism. But in reading Romans 11, we see that there's no allowance for a two-track salvation system. The apostle is clear that there is one olive tree, and those who reject God's righteousness by faith, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, they're broken off. The passage tells us that they're broken off on account of unbelief. Being a physical descendant of the patriarchs does not in itself bring salvation. Belief in Jesus is what is essential. But the paragraph ends on a note of hope for the Jewish people. It says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This metaphor highlights the unity of God's people, which crosses historical and ethnic boundaries. There's one olive tree whose roots are firmly planted in the Old Testament soil. And the branches of that tree include Jews and Gentiles. God's people have always been saved by grace through faith. This was true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament. That's the point of Romans 4. We're not saved by works, but by faith. And, and that means that those who are coming to Christ in these New Testament times are part of the same community of salvation that was established on God's promises to the patriarchs. Yet, yet we could say that the coming of Christ brought with it an important development in the growth of this tree. What we know is the object of faith has become clear. They looked ahead to the coming of Jesus. We look back, and we could say that the ethnic makeup of, of the people of God, or we could say the ethnic make, makeup of the branches on this tree has, has changed dramatically as God has extended His grace in greater measure to the Gentiles. Now, were Gentiles still saved in the Old Testament? Yes, we can think of individuals like Rahab, or Naaman, or Ruth, or the widow of Zarephath. But, but God has extended His grace in a vastly increased measure in these times. You just think of what Jesus told His disciples at the beginning of Acts. He says, 
you're going to receive power when my spirit comes upon you. And then what's going to happen? You're going to be my witnesses just to the Jewish people? No, he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But does that mean that the, the church has replaced Israel? I, I don't think that aligns with the plain and straightforward reading of this passage. The, the chapter seems to be teaching that the people of Israel continue to exist as an object of God's care and attention. He, he's, he's still concerned. And, I, uh, you know, th- this is an argument from Scripture, but I just, this is more of just an argument, I guess, from observation, that I've never met anyone who's like a Hittite or an Amorite or a Philistine or any of those other ites, but I've met plenty of Jewish people. Like, th- despite all that's happened to the Jewish people, they're, they're, today are spread out all over the earth. And we'll look at Scripture, too, beginning now in verse 25. It says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So Paul returns to this idea that came up earlier, that Israel's rejection, it's passing, it's temporary, and it will last until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Well, what does that mean? Well, th- there are several views that are, are biblical, but after studying the passage this week, uh, here's how I interpret it. What, what does Israel mean in the passage? Well, we look back up in verse 25, and it says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Israel, in that context, I think it's referring to those who are ethnically Jewish, the people as a whole, I don't think it's referring to a faithful remnant because that would make any sense because it's acknowledging that there's a hardening on this, this specific population. And so if that's what it means in verse 25, that's what it's referring to, the people of Israel as a whole, I think that's what it makes sense uh, to see it as in verse 26. And this way, all Israel would be saved. And if you were to say, ah, I don't know, maybe it's just talking about, you know, just the the Jews that, that come to faith in, in each generation, well, why would that then be a mystery? I mean, that, that would kind of make sense in light of what we read in verses 1 to 10. And so I think it makes more sense to see this as teaching that there will be a widespread conversion among the Jewish people who are alive at a future point in time. And I don't think all Israel means that every single person who's Jewish and alive at that point in time will be saved, but rather as a whole, the Jewish people will recognize Jesus as their promised deliverer. And you would say, well, why would God do this? Why would that happen? Well, what's the reason any of us are saved? It's God's grace, isn't it? There's nothing special that we've done that, that we should deserve God's unmerited favor. And this is, I think, the point Paul is making as he ends the chapter in verse 30. For just as at one time you were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It's God's mercy that saves all of us. 
regardless of your ethnicity. I know this is a a lot to cover in a 30-minute span, 32 verses, and uh, I anticipate there might still be some unanswered questions, and I'll just let you know that uh, we do this thing. Every Tuesday, we call it Table Talk. If, uh, it's on our YouTube channel if you've never been there. And uh, you can email any questions you still might have uh, to tabletalk at riveroakschurch.org. And then uh, David Holcomb and I will do our best to answer those. That's tabletalk at riveroakschurch.org. And if you go to our YouTube channel, uh, on just riveroakschurch.org, rather River Oaks Community Church, you'll find our YouTube channel, and you could watch that on Tuesday, and we'll try and answer those. But as we close, and I think about how this passage applies to us, I, I, I can't help but just, I, I want to reinforce the point that this isn't just some philosophical debate, this isn't some theological conundrum that Paul is trying to, to puzzle out. This is a heartbreaking matter for him. And, and when those of us who are, are Gentile believers think about those who are ethnically Jewish, uh, I want to reinforce what this chapter makes clear, that there can be no room for a feeling of superiority or pride. And rather, our response should be like the Apostle Paul in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's in anguish when he thinks about people that are lost. And we, we should pray for the salvation of our Jewish friends, that they would come to see the Messiah. And, and we should share God's news with them, knowing that God, if, if God can go and he can graft wild olive branches like us into the root system, then surely he can save the natural branches that have been cut off. If God in his mercy can save us and our disobedience, then God in his mercy can save anyone, Jew or Gentile. And that, my friends, uh, should inspire us to prayer and, and, and to leave from here and to go out and live in a way that would hopefully provoke others to jealousy and they might want to experience what we're experiencing with our Creator. Can I pray for us? God, I pray that you would grant us understanding. And I pray that if I have taught anything in error, that you, by the, the power of your Spirit, would guide us in all truth. And I pray that the result of our time spent in your Word, that you would strengthen the faith of those of us who have already believed, that we would be reminded of your mercy and the importance of standing in faith. And Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to believe, I pray today as a result of hearing your word that you would add branches to your olive tree. And Lord, in these, um, these times of heightened tension between ethnicities, I pray that you would build bridges of salvation I pray that for those of us who are believers, you would help us to live in such a way that those in a state of unbelief would see our walk with you 
and they might be prompted to believe and to be saved. Or to think of uh, our youth who are away at campaigns right now, all the middle school and high school students and the leaders. We pray your blessing upon them as they're in their final morning session now. We pray that your word would go forth with power, that you would grab a hold of hearts, and that those who participate would come back in closer fellowship with you. And we ask all this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.